Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Liverpool Echo. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Dan O'Donoghue and on this week's episode, Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons speaks to Duncan Johnson, the chief executive of the groundbreaking new investment company based in the North, Northern Gritstone about how his efforts to support the region's innovators could help bridge the North-South divide. Look, there are loads of people who work in finance in London, for better or worse, will never have been to the North of England. They'll never have come to hunt out opportunities. It's, it's, It's really quite criminal, but that is what has happened. And I think is being reinforced by that London being a global city. And I think one of the things we need to do is to make sure that the Northern powerhouse itself becomes a global epicenter for innovation and science. It's talked of in the same ways as Silicon Valley. But first, a key cornerstone of the government's plan to level up the country is restoring pride in place. Whether through tidier town centres or more cultural offerings, Michael Gove sees this as one of his main missions to be achieved by 2030. Jonathan Webb from the IPPR North Think Tank joins us now to discuss this. Jonathan, welcome. You've just published a paper for the IPPR looking specifically at how residents in Liverpool and Anglesey in North Wales would like to see their communities reshaped in the future. I just wondered if you could just explain a little bit about your research and and some of the things that you've found. Yeah, absolutely. So what we wanted to do with this research is sort of cut through the noise a little bit when it comes to talks about the net zero transition. So The starting point for us really was thinking about the fact that actually, you know, net zero is a really salient political issue at the moment. But actually, what does it mean for communities? What do communities want out of it? And what do communities think is the best way to go about achieving net zero? So what we did in our research was we went to two different places, two very different types of places. We went, first of all, to Liverpool. So in many ways, Liverpool city regions is sort of your, you know, archetypical northern city region you know the key challenges there are lack of green spaces in the city affordability of public transport and the dominance of cars in and around the city so that was one place we went to the second place we went to was very different that was a very rural area in the form of the isle of anglesey so there the issues are you know in many ways quite different from in liverpool there's a real concern about sustainability on the island so whether the current dominance of tourism in particular on the island is compatible with the desire to preserve the natural environment, as well as a more existential question. Um, Thinking about where Anglesey is and its exposure to rising sea levels, what more can be done to actually make sure that the island is there, not just now, but in the future? So we went to these places and what we did was we ran deliberative workshops with, with groups of people. So basically what that means is we got a group of people together representative of that area put them in a workshop for a weekend and really decided to talk through some of those issues. The really interesting thing which came out of these discussions was, despite the fact these places are on paper very different, actually a lot of the desires and the wishes from the residents for this transition shared a lot in common. So when it comes to net zero, actually people like the places where they live. They take a lot of pride in their places. They want to be able to build on that in a more sustainable way. So It's thinking, for example, about the fact that in Liverpool, you've got loads of great parks in the city. How can we make those green spaces more accessible, more widely available and build on what Liverpool's got? Similarly, it's about making places not just more sustainable, but making places safer. How can we make our communities less car dominant and perhaps reclaim some of that space 
for children and families to, you know, get around in a way which is not just better for the environment, but better for well-being. So it was really interesting to see that despite these places being very different, there's actually a really good set of shared common asks when we went to people and said, what is your vision for what a net zero future looks like? So it seems from what you're saying, really, there's an opportunity, I suppose, to really fuse, you know, the drive for net zero and I suppose some of these levelling up aims, you know, pride in place, as you say, you can broaden that out to, you know, more green spaces, better public transport, things like that. So is that how it should be seen really as an opportunity to to link both of them together, net zero and and levelling up? Absolutely. In many ways, they're, they're about the same thing. It's, it's that both agendas, what both agendas are missing at the minute is they're talking about policies aimed at local communities, but fundamentally, it's not working with communities to achieve those objectives and outcomes. So one of the key things which came out of our, our discussions time and time again in these two different places was actually people feel like policy is done to them. It's not done with them. So really, when we think about levelling up, that's got to be at the heart of that, right? It's got to be about making sure we develop a new way of doing politics and, you know, developing policies where we're actively involving communities more. The same can be said for net zero that, you know, that in many ways is going to be the big change in people's lives over the next few decades. And if we don't do it with communities and we don't understand what, not only what they want from the transition, but actually what are the things that they see as potential upshots and benefits that we can enhance and improve on through that transition, we're not going to deliver it in a way where we're, you know, not just reaching out as net zero objectives, but also delivering wider benefits in terms of social and economic justice. I mean, just to, to drill down into this a bit more, so take public transport, you know, that on two levels, you know, it, it helps, well, contribute towards our net zero aims, but it also serves local people by, you know, connecting people into the city centres and, and, you know, developing job opportunities or access to leisure facilities, whatever that is. You know, over the last few months, we've seen reports from up and down the country about bus operators facing crisis because of lack of COVID support. And, and obviously, over the last couple of years, I mean, there was that famous Prime Minister's questions where Jeremy Corbyn, I think, just focused specifically on buses and the need for buses. So this has been a long-running issue. I mean, does that worry you at all? I mean, is enough being done? Is public transport in the regions being taken seriously enough um, from what you've seen and heard? I think the, the real problem at the minute is it, it's not being taken seriously enough. That's that's the simple, honest answer to that. And and when when we spoke to people as part of this research, we found that was a major concern because the problem is like, you know, yes, in theory, we could reduce all emissions from vehicles if we just swapped everyone's, you know, petrol or diesel cars for electric vehicles tomorrow. But fundamentally, that's not what people want. People don't like the fact that the only way they can take their kids to school because they don't feel safe walking is to sit in a car in traffic for 30 minutes, putting pollutants into the air. They want other better, more viable options in terms of the way that they can get around and travel in terms of taking their kids to school, commuting for work or going into, you know, cities or or towns for leisure. So it's popular with people. But the problem is at the minute, we're not seeing central government take it seriously. Um, And I think, again, it really does need to start taking it seriously because it's not just what, you know, opinion polling says, but, you know, our research has shown that it's really popular with people. And actually, it's it's not just about reaching net zero. It's about the prosperity of, you know, regional economies. If we don't have these good public transport links, we're simply not going to level up. On a similar theme, you know, your research, you've also focused on, you know, green spaces in towns and cities. 
and the importance of that, you know, not just for people, but for the environment as well. Again, you know, with councils up against it and with their budgets, and, you know, we've been reporting on the fact that many councils are going to have to put up tax again in April, but at the same time, they're going to have to cut back on services to balance the books. I mean, if there is more green spaces, who I suppose would maintain this? Would we have to return to kind of David Cameron's big society to get more volunteers and to be doing things like this? Is it just, you know, the government, I suppose, Putting the right, making the right noises with the leveling up white paper and saying that these things need to be done. But when it comes to it, you know, I suppose where's the cash to actually do these things? Yeah, that's that's a really important point, and the point we're always making at IPPR North is that there's, you know, there's an elephant in the room when it comes to the leveling up agenda, and that's austerity. The impact that's had on, you know, local government is significant. And as you pointed out, things like green spaces, parks in particular vast majority of those are maintained and operated by local government. And we won't be able to do more of those things unless we give local local government not only more resources, but also the powers it needs to go further. So I think the way we've seen it manifest in our research and the way that it was put to us by uh, different communities is that actually having a strong local state is a really important part of this agenda. People love their places and, you know, they love the idea of having more green spaces and even a lot of the people we spoke to, you know, they did voluntary activities to promote that. But there's also a keen awareness there from from the public that you can't do these things without local government. You can have all the goodwill in the world and, you know, all the commitment from the voluntary sector, but it simply isn't enough to kind of do this at the scale that's needed unless you have strong local government. So that's why we call for, for not just this specific bit of research, but more broadly at IPPR North, we've been advocates for a long time of actually we need to think about renewal in terms of local government and make sure we not only reverse the effects of austerity, but actually we start enhancing local government because both in terms of levelling up and net zero, again, it's simply not going to happen unless you think about the local state and its role in that. And finally, I think in your paper, you uh, found that residents felt kind of almost distant from net zero and perhaps didn't trust Westminster with the transition, with, with decarbonisation. How could that be changed? Um, what what would you like to see happen? I mean, is there any policies that could maybe improve people's perceptions of this? I mean, it's a bit of a bonkers thing to say, but, you know, could you link, for example, cheaper energy prices in an area to wind turbines in your region? I suppose where people can see there's a direct link between doing things for the environment and then having a benefit in your area. I don't, I don't know if there's any policies in particular. Yeah, I think a couple of policies really kind of spring to mind and came out through our research. I think, first of all, is thinking about how we give communities a genuine stake in their local area. So a key way you can do that is thinking about community asset and community ownership models. So for example, if we're thinking about resources like renewable energy, are there ways, for example, that it's not just you know energy companies who, who benefit from that growth in renewable energy, but actually there's ways to promote community ownership of those assets. I think the second way really is thinking more broadly about our current you know, governance arrangements and actually what is the roles for communities within that. And that sort of cuts across different levels. I think in terms of kind of the central local relation question, it, it's about making sure that we see more powers at the local level. So actually that's where kind of the focus of the policy ecosystem is. It's at the local level. Um, and then I think the second thing to do after that is again, find ways that we can actually actively involve citizens in that decision-making process. So things like citizens' juries, for example, that's often put forward as one way of involving citizens and kind of getting their perspective involved. But it can be broader than that. Things like actually thinking about the active design of neighbourhoods. Are there ways, for example, we could 
come up with new planning processes where local residents have much more of a say in terms of the, the sustainable things they want to see in their communities. Um, and then that can be put to local government. So there's ways you can go about doing this. And I think the encouraging thing we found in our research is that actually there's a real appetite there to do things differently. I think there's very much a sense at the minute that actually decisions are made in Westminster, not necessarily in our interest. And it feels like a very distant um, decision-making process. So because that appetite is there, there's there's a real opportunity now there for policymakers to seize that and actually say, you know what, we've got net zero, we've got levelling up, it's a chance to do something differently and change the way we, we make decisions in this country. Let's go about and do it. Now, listeners to this podcast may not know this, but the north of England's universities are home to an amazing pool of researchers and academics whose work could have a very real bearing on the way we live our lives in the years to come. Leeds, Manchester and Sheffield universities have been home to 38 Nobel Prize winners and are said to produce close to 10% of all the patents and one-fifth of all intellectual property licences filed by the UK's higher education institutions. But you may not be surprised to hear, given the north-south divides we discuss every week on the Northern Agenda, that these universities do not necessarily have the same access to the same levels of funding support to turn innovative ideas into commercial businesses that their counterparts in London and the South East enjoy. Bridging that gap could bring high-skilled jobs and investment to our region and ultimately help bring about the government's aims of making the North of England more productive and prosperous. So today we're speaking to the Chief Executive of the new organisation hoping to do just that, Northern Gritstone, a groundbreaking new investment company based in the North and founded by the Universities of Leeds, Manchester and Sheffield, is backed by influential figures like former Treasury Minister Lord Jim O'Neill, one of the architects of the Northern Powerhouse. But how will it operate? And perhaps more importantly, how will the innovations it encourages help tackle these long-standing regional inequalities? So Duncan Johnson is the Chief Executive of Northern Gritstone. Duncan, welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast. Yeah, hi Rob. Thank you very much for inviting me to come along and have a chat with you about Northern Gritstone. No problem at all. So perhaps as a starter for 10, maybe you could just sum up what Northern Gritstone is all about and, and why it exists in the first place. So I think the purpose of Northern Gritstone is is remarkably simple, and you've touched upon it in your introduction there, that the science being an innovation being generated in the North of England is absolutely world-class. And uh, you chat to anybody in Oxford, Cambridge, London, or any other academic institution in the UK, and they will tell you that some of the best science is happening in the North of England, and the statistics prove that out. What it isn't getting access to is the funding that that, that deserves. And to just uh, bring bring that into stark focus, in 2019, uh, the Northern Universities attracted only 1.8% of the of the early stage venture funding in the UK. And to put that into money terms, and, and this number is shocking, it was £22 million. That is versus uh, 90% of the funding, which went to Oxford, Cambridge and London, which is collectively known as the Golden Triangle for these purposes, who received £900 million. So you have a level playing field of science and a totally and utterly uneven level playing field of funding. The incredible thing that has happened here is that uh, five years ago, the universities of Leeds, Manchester and Sheffield decided to do something about this. And I'm a believer in life. You can either put up or shut up. And rather than 
shutting up, the universities put up and they started working together and they started investing together in a thing called the Northern Triangle Initiative and sharing best practice. And then two years ago, that evolved into making the decision to launch Northern Gridstone. And they did that by putting together a what's called a framework agreement, which gives Northern Gridstone the opportunity to invest for the next 15 years in all of the spin-outs coming out of those organisations. The quality and depth of those spin-outs is quite amazing. Half of it is life sciences. And in the current pipeline, we have 140 business opportunities. And that's an amazing number, of which 70 are different hues of life science, drug discovery or diagnostics or med tech. And then the other half is science. So that's robotics, it's AI, quantum computing, materials, agritech, fintech, all sorts of things. And the thing that draws them together is that the science is world class. This is world beating stuff. And what Northern Gridstone is about is trying to turn that world class science into the world class businesses of tomorrow. And we have the skill sets and the ecosystem that allows that to happen. And we we are raising and about to close out on our fundraise on a substantial amount of capital, which will be the catalyst to allow those businesses to start to develop. So we talk about life sciences and robotics and things like that. So you seem that you already have a few specific examples and like projects that you're working on at the moment, Northern Gritstone is working on that could become proper businesses in the months or years to come. I mean, are there any examples that you can give to our listeners of projects that, you know, specific projects? Yeah, I mean, there are some, there's some really interesting things. There's a, there's a business that has spun out of the University of Sheffield called Opteran. David Rajan is the, is the CEO. And it's an amazing piece of science that is, has used the way that brain of bees operate and manoeuvre and process information and put that into a small piece of artificial intelligence brain that can operate drones. And these drones are, this engine is incredibly light. It's something like 20 grams. And the way it functions and the way it operates is world beating in how it does that. Now, David has already had a level of seed funding. He's now going around looking to raise the next level of funding going to be a a raise about five to 10 million. Uh, David has been showcasing this business to the West Coast and has interest from all of the businesses there you'd you'd expect. And that's a a piece of amazing science there that's been developed in Sheffield. Opteran has the absolute potential to be a world-class business. And I think David is a, as a CEO, is is, is really quite a special guy. So that's sort of one end of the of the spectrum. At Leeds, there's a, there's a business called Cavero Quantum, which is one of the many things coming out of the Lead Technology Transfer Office, the TTO. And Cavero Quantum, I, I sort of conceptualise, is Enigma code for quantum computing. Security and cybersecurity is really quite difficult within the quantum computing arena. And it's one of those things that people are trying to crack. And it looks to us like the Cavero Quantum team have come up with a an end-to-end unique piece of coding that allows information to be encrypted within a quantum computing uh, environment and and a really interesting business that is coming up for funding it's something that we're really interested in in backing and 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 spinning out of out of the university of of leeds and then coming over into to manchester i mean manchester has a history of some amazing 
scientific innovation. It was where computing was effectively invented. Uh, you'll be aware of that. And obviously, in the in the more recent past, there's the there is the the discovery of graphene and the investment that's gone into the to the to the graphene center. Uh, we have a very interesting uh, opportunity that's come out of the graphene center called Water Cycle Technologies, where the team has uh, found a way of extracting commercial quantities of lithium out of deep water brine at, at, at ambient temperature and ambient pressures that vastly reduces the environmental footprint of uh, a lithium extraction. So that gives you really quite an interesting feel for the type of opportunities that are coming out of, of the universities, all applied, so all with a, a relevant everyday purpose to them. And then in the life sciences, we have a whole a range of uh, of opportunities. Uh, just calling out a couple, there's clearly quite a lot of work goes into the cancer area. And there's a couple of businesses uh, that we're very interested in coming out of Sheffield, which are uh, around a, a group of scientists and, and entrepreneurs at Modulus Oncology. There is then a, a, a very interesting deafness business called Rinry Therapeutics, which is also out of uh, Sheffield, which has come up using stem cell technology to actually cure deafness. Now, deafness, you can't currently cure. You can only ameliorate and mitigate the issues. And so actually coming up with a cure for deafness is really quite quite, quite special. That's a business that spun out of, uh, of Leeds five years or so ago and is nicely developed. And we'd be looking to fund it along with uh, a number of other investors in its next round of funding. That's interesting. A lot of very fascinating projects there. So how did you get involved in this? Because, I mean, you, this is a relatively new venture for you. What what got you into this arena? So I've been a, a private market investor for just coming up to 25 years now. I started off in what was called the venture capital part of Royal Bank of Scotland uh, in the 90s. And from there, with a couple of other guys, we set up our own uh, lower mid-market private equity business. It then the names had changed by then to private equity or venture capital and growth capital as the sector developed. Uh, and I spent a decade there. And then for the last 11 years, I've been running the private side of an investment trust called Caledonia Investments. I got to the age of 50, my children going off to the to university, and I decided I wanted to do something else that had what I call fundamental impact. I wanted to use my skill set of being a backer and developer of businesses to do something that would actually create jobs, create wealth, would have an impact on levelling up. And I actually got headhunted for for the role at Northern Grist. And I wasn't going out saying, do you know what the thing I want to do to set up a business uh, investing in the great science coming out of Leeds, Manchester and Sheffield. But the moment the headhunter picked up the phone to me and said, Duncan, we've got something we think might be might be quite good for you in what you want to do. I thought, yeah, do you know what? This is this is something quite special. We've become very focused on a on a term in the business called profit with purpose. And I think that's something that goes through the heart of everybody's involved here, from Jim O'Neill to my PA and the CFO and our CIO and all the investors we meet. And it's about making sure that when, when we create profit, we're creating purpose. And the two goals of the business are just as important as each other. So what's purpose? Purpose for us is investing in and creating skilled, well-paid jobs in the north of England. It's taking great science and turning it into great businesses. And it's about improving the productivity gap that exists between the North and South. It's about pulling capital and expertise 
up from the south of England into the north of England to help invest in the infrastructure there and then to start growing and investing in homegrown talent in the north of England. I don't want to use words like I'm embarrassed, but I, but I think I have been a bit embarrassed by the fact that the finance has just become very south-focused. It's It's totally biased into the south of England, yet... Some of the greatest things are going on in the North England. I think 48% of all unicorns in the UK have been developed in the North of England. Let's explain what a unicorn is for our listeners. A, a unicorn is a business that, that has a billion pound plus valuation placed on it, normally in the venture arena. And this is things like the Hutt Group and, uh, and, and things like that. I, I wanted to do something that I felt could have an impact. And I could use my skills to do something that I think would have a greater good than just making more money for shareholders. And that's what really attracts me to Northern Gritstone. And then when we managed to bring in Lord O'Neill to the to Northern Gritstone, that was a real game changer for me as well. I've really enjoyed working with Jim. He is clearly a very knowledgeable person, but he's passionate about the Northern powerhouse and levelling up and uh, being able to, to harness that energy and that knowledge and skill set into Northern Gritstone has been a has been a great thing for us. Now you were talking about the the process that you're going through at the moment to you know get the the, the funding together to make some of these uh, innovations turn them into businesses. What what stage are we at with that? And what what sort of kind what what kind of funding are we are we talking about here? I mean it is it's it's big numbers, isn't it, for people who are, aren't in the world of high finance. One of the things we, we set about doing was to raise what for early stage funding is a large amount of money. We are looking to raise up to half a billion pounds to invest in early stage businesses. We do that by going around talking to people we think should be interested in it. That normally falls into three or four camps. One is pension funds, and we've had very good support from the local pension funds in the north of England. And, and that is actually fantastic. And I've been really delighted by the by the support we've had from the likes of Greater Manchester, from West Yorkshire, from Merseyside and Greater Manchester Combined Authority, who really want to use the funding they have available to them to help us do this. UK government has been very supportive in terms of helping us raise money from the strategic partners the UK government has. So uh, UK government has some 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 people who uh, sit in consulates around the world who are there to drive inward investment into the UK. And Northern Gritstone has been number one or two in their playbooks for the last six months in terms of talking to that. And uh, we've had some really good introductions and access to the people they know. And, and that will will flow through both at first in this fundraise and subsequent fundraisers. So that's been fantastic. We also have support from UK institutions. So the likes of M&G have committed uh, up to £50 million to Northern Gritstone, uh, and that is from their impact fund. And we're delighted by the support of M&G because that's the foundation we've been able to build other funders on. And also from Lansdowne Partners there, where a chap, uh, Pete Davis, has been a, a key funder to this science and innovation sector for at least the last decade. And we're, we're delighted to have Pete's uh, support for Northern Gritstone. Then there's a number of high net worth individuals who are from the north, uh, who have who have made substantial amount of money, and they want to find ways of reinvesting that money into the north of England, and that's been a really fertile 
area for us. I've not had one conversation with that type of person who isn't full square behind Northern Gritstone and us being successful in what we're trying to do. And that's been really heartening. So from that group of of, of people, uh, we we will get to raise um, the sort of amounts of money we're talking about. Looking a few years into the future, what does success look like for Northern Gritstone? If if, if the aims that you're hoping for come to fruition, what, what what will we see in a few years' time? Our mantra, of course, is profit with purpose. So we, we have to talk a little bit dirty. We have to talk about profit. One of the absolute potentials here, which we've seen particularly through the pandemic, is by commercializing this science and doing and doing that well, you can make very valuable businesses. And for a number of the shareholders, obviously making a profit is important. They want to drive value creation for their funders, and that's very important. So that, that's clearly one element. The other element that, if we do that right, flows out of that, is creating new jobs, is creating new businesses. And within five years, we would expect to be running a, a portfolio of 100 investments into 100 companies. So that is the number of new businesses that we would look to have have invested in over the first five years. So about 20 a year. So so really quite a high volume of activity. The other thing that we are wanting to do is to catalyze other investors coming in to the region. So a key part of success for us is catalyzing what is what is pretty well already there, but is just quite nascent, it's a little bit disorganized in in certain areas and work with other funders to bring them into our investments and help them be more successful as well, which will drive them raising more money, which they'll be able to invest into the the Northern Powerhouse region. So we expect to see a whole innovation ecosystem being developed over the next five years. So the best example of that in the UK at the moment is around Cambridge. And over the last 30 years, the Cambridge Science Park has been the home of some amazing businesses. Most people will be aware of ARM Holdings and Acon Computers that came out of there. But actually, it's a bit like going to Silicon Valley in California when you go to the Cambridge Science Park. You've got world-class businesses cheek by jowl within the science park there. And having that there pulls in more and more entrepreneurs, more and more science, more and more funding. And that's what we want Northern Gritstone to be the catalyst for within the north of England. So that for me would be success that there might be another three or four Northern Gritstones that we would have in ID Manchester, the AMRC in Sheffield, and the, the Nexus and Innovation District in Leeds, that kind of feel and that kind of gravitational pull of both entrepreneurs and the science and lots more funders in the region. It's interesting when you're talking about the, uh, you know, what's led us to this point and the the imbalance in funding. And I'm, I'm just wondering what your view is on why that has continued to be the case. Because I think most politicians agree that that the UK economy is very unbalanced, and those figures that you've just described speak for themselves. But and obviously now the the government in its levelling up white paper has said that they want to invest more money into research and development in the north. I mean, how, how has this situation been allowed to perpetuate for so long where the north is missing out on this investment that the southeast and London is getting? Like, do, you, do you have any theories on that? Yeah, I suppose I do at, at certain levels. I mean, I think one of, the, one of the great things about the UK is that London is a global city. 
So it's not just a, a national city, it's an international global city on the, the same level as New York and all the other great global cities. And that creates its own ecosystem around it. And that's why there is so much wealth there, because it's not just capital flows created within the UK. It is an international ecosystem. And I think that that leads to a fundamental imbalance because you, you have parts of the UK that are in local and national economies. And then you have the southeast, which is part of an international economy where everything's on a different scale. And I think that has compounded over the last 20, 30 years. I think capital has become more concentrated there. And as that has become more concentrated, the disparity between the southeast and London and the rest of the UK has been exacerbated. Look, there are loads of people who work in finance in London, for better or worse, will never have been to the north of England. They'll never have come to hunt out opportunities. It's, it's, it's really quite criminal, but that is what has happened and I think is being reinforced by that London being a global city. And I think one of the things we need to do is to make sure that the northern powerhouse itself becomes a global epicentre for innovation and science. It's talked of in the same ways as Silicon Valley. That, that's what we really need to do, is to sort of change the way we talk about it, change that ambition, because I think that's what we need to reverse. But I, th I think that's why it's happened. I mean, I think, you know, London, ever since the days of the empire, has been overweight in, 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 in UK finance. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's, uh, yeah, what you set out there is a compelling vision of making the Northern Powerhouse a sort of global power for investments. Well, uh, Duncan Johnson, Chief Executive of Northern Gritstone, thank you very much for speaking to us today. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue. And it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Spotify.